Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ricky Singh, and I'm from Delaware, and I have summited Mount Everest, the highest point in the world. And you're listening to the True Philadelphia podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Ricky Singh, a businessman from Greenville, Delaware, is among the most genuine, thoughtful, spiritual, and peaceful people I've ever met. It's also pretty cool that he made it to the top of Mount Everest in May of 2019. Singh's own research found that he is also the first person to reach the peak who has also run 50 marathons in all 50 states, the first American Sikh, and the second Indian American. We sat in his dining room and recounted every stage of his successful ascent to the summit of Everest. What he thought, what he endured, and how he made it through such mental and physical hardships made this such a fascinating conversation. Everest summiter Ricky Singh, right now on the True Philadelphia podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Ricky Singh of Greenville, Delaware, a very special person because you managed to run 50 marathons in 50 states. And then just to put the icing on the cake, you climbed Mount Everest last year. That's right. Mount Everest, the highest point in the world. Are you someone who gets bored easily or <laughs> what's the deal? <laughs> no, um, somebody that sets goals and, and does uh, everything they can in their power to, to you know, get to those goals and uh, accomplish them. So what I want to do is I want to start with what it was like on top of that mountain. And then I want to go back and talk about how sure. you got there. Sure. Get to the high point first. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what everyone <laughs> wants to know, right? So what I've heard is that when you're on the top, it's about the size of two ping pong tables. Is that correct? Uh, a little bit more than that. Maybe three or four. How many people were you with? Uh, I was with one other Sherpa and there were about uh, five other uh, climbers that were there on the top with their Sherpas when I got there. What was it like being on the top of the world? It's a magical place. Uh, they say that, you know, if you get up to the top and you look at the horizon, you can see the curvature of the earth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when a science teacher says the earth is round, believe them. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> Finally <laughs> proven all those flat earthers wrong. There right? you go. There you go. So uh, it's, it's a magical place. You, you stand up there and, and there's nowhere else to go. On one side is uh, China, one side is Nepal. And you see, I don't know, miles and miles and miles. But it's also uh, a place, uh, a dangerous place, extremely, extremely windy because there's nothing blocking those yeah. winds. Uh, you have to be careful uh, when you stand up. You got to make sure you have your safety on. Um, it's, you're tired by the time you get there. And all you want to do is just, you know, take a moment, savor, uh, savor the moment. Uh, I said a pair when I got there. I had a few things in my backpack that I took out, a few mementos. Uh, a couple of small signs, uh, thanking God, my family, uh, that kind of stuff. There must be a sense of pure spirituality when you're up there because you, I guess it's what astronauts feel like when they separate themselves from the Earth's atmosphere and they're actually out in space. They feel, they feel a oneness with the universe. Did you get that feeling? Uh, I, I did. It's, it's extremely spiritual. Uh, it's a place where wonders happen. Uh, stuff, uh, crevices happen, avalanches happen, and you realize how small you are compared to, uh, to nature. 
um, you are God's creation and uh, the only way to make it up and back is by God's will. So the top of the peak, is, it's basically the size of this dining room. That's so, right. So are you afraid you're going to fall off if you take a couple steps backwards? I mean, what's the deal? Yeah, so, you know, most of them, uh, most people will sit down there instead of, instead of standing there. So you're, you're sitting down, you're taking a couple pictures, you want to look around, uh, walk the perimeter a little bit and uh, come down as soon as possible. Because once you get there, you, your job is done. You want to get to the top of the earth, you go there, touch it, see it, feel it. A few moments, you take a drink of water, you say a prayer, you say thank you to your uh, climbing partners, and then you say, okay, what's next? Need to get back, because the climb isn't complete till you come back home. It was a bit cloudy that day? It was a little bit cloudy, but uh, otherwise a clear day. There's a reason why it was cloudy, and it was smart on your part to go up there in poor weather, and we're going to get to that in yes. a moment. Um, you started doing 5Ks and 10Ks at the age of 37. Yes. And that got you into super fitness type of stuff, and then you decided, I want to do A, B, and C by the age of 50. Right. That's how. Tell me why you decided to do these things. So... Uh... My first run happened on July 27, 2005. Uh, I remember that date and day precisely because my son was born on that day. Okay. So my you son. You have two children. I have two children. Okay. This is my younger son. He was born on that day. I came home. I was tired. I hadn't even done anything. My wife had done all the work, <laughs> childbirth. <laughs> and I said to myself, hey, you know, is this the best uh, you want to be? Um, do you want to play with him when he's younger? Do you want to be there for his college graduation? Do you want to dance at his wedding? And the answer was, if I had continued on the path that I was, uh, doing nothing, being a couch potato, uh, I would have been in trouble. So I went for my first run on that day. I went outside. It's a 0.5 mile loop around my house. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> oh, and now it's nothing. But at that point, I took a few steps and I couldn't breathe. I had to stop. And then I had to decide, do I continue? Or do I walk back to my house, to the comfort of my house, to the air conditioning? And I thought to myself, if my son was in that position, what would I do? Or what, I, what would I want him to do? Would I want him to quit every time he gets uh, discomfort? Or would he uh, power through that discomfort? And I said, if I want him to do it, I got to do it. And that's how I got through that day. How many years did it take to run all 50 marathons in all 50 states? Uh, it took me 11 years to do all 50 states. So that's about 10 a year? About 10 a year. Did you do it no, quicker than you? No, five a year. Okay, yes. I'm doing five. my math incorrectly here. <laughs> five a year. What, were you surprised you were able to do it that quickly? Uh, uh, towards the end, I was really kicking. So initially, it was just one, one a year, two a year. And then afterwards, towards the end, as I got fitter, I was doing one a month. Which is the worst marathon and which is the best one, in your experience? Uh, there were many good ones and many bad ones. <laughs> and, and I finished every one of them, and, and that's the key. Uh, I had one in uh, Omaha, Nebraska that I remember was, uh, was really good for me because uh, I was fit, uh, I was really good, I was you know, kicking asphalt there, I was running like crazy, and that uh, stands out. And of course, there's marathons that uh, are beautiful, you know. Um, there's one in Death Valley, there's one in Hawaii, there's one in Alaska. All these destination marathons that, uh, it's beautiful scenery. Uh, also ran the Marine Corps Marathon, which to me was probably the most uh, 
motivating because you're running with with people that have given everything for their country mm. their hands their legs uh, parts of their body that you couldn't even imagine and they were running some of them were running with rucksacks some of them were in wheelchairs and to be surrounded by those people to receive a medal at the end from a from a marine it's probably one of the finest memories of my life which state was the last one you did uh, I did Massachusetts last. So the Boston? I did not do Boston. Oh, you did There was another small one that I did. I oh, okay. tried to stay away from the big ones because uh, logistics is a nightmare. Interesting, interesting. I guess that's pretty uh, smart. Um, how do you keep in shape? Uh, just a uh, few hours here and there. An hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. Running? Running. You do any other kind of uh, strenuous exercises? Not really. Lifting? Not really. Stretching? Not really. I'm married. Nothing dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Stick to the safe stuff running. So when you finish these 50 marathons, that was the point where you're like, let's go and reach even higher. And you decide, let's do Mount Everest. But was it the cost? Was it being fit mentally or physically the biggest thing that you felt like you had to jump over to make sure you were ready? So the biggest thing for marathons I mean, the easiest thing was marathons was no matter what happens, you'd get home safe. So there was no fear, uh, no fear of death, uh, safety-wise. From a Mount Everest perspective, uh, you know that one out of ten aren't going to make it. One out of three are going to have some sort of permanent injury. There's lots of other data. So to come to grips with their mortality, that to me was the biggest uh, point. Fitness-wise was no problem. I was really in good shape. Um, I needed a few technical uh, things that I needed to learn, um, climbing, repelling, all that good stuff. But other than that, fitness-wise, it wasn't an issue. The biggest issue was for me was, was grappling with my own mortality and say, I leave house uh, one day and I, I'm unable to come back. Um, there's an avalanche, there's uh, a crevice opens up, I, I fall off a cliff or something just gives way under me. Things that I have no control over. And to come to terms with that and accept that and, and to be able to say, okay, I've lived my life, I've done everything I could have done to be safe, prepare myself. Uh, to me, that was the biggest hurdle. So I, I waited for a few months, uh, got my will done, got my insurance done, talked to my family. That must have been harrowing doing that. Um, it's part of life. I think I should have done that much earlier. Everybody should do that, you know. Sure. So it was just uh, something that was necessary. But it also forced me to come up with these uncomfortable scenarios where I may not come back, who's going to take care of my wife and kids? Um, if I came back and I was disabled, how would I uh, continue to function uh, and, and earn my livelihood? So all those things came up and, and then we just went through them one by one and we overcame them at some point. You visited Nepal several times, not only to get acquainted with the high altitude, but also the culture, the food, and I guess right. the climbing industry there. Right. And you also climbed the uh, one of the higher mountains, the eighth tallest in yes, the world. Yes, Mount Manasalu. Mount Mansu yeah, uh, which is 26,000 feet, 3,000 yes. feet below Everest. Uh, how was that? So I had broken up my... Uh, Everest mission into five different phases. The first phase was I would go and I would touch 5,000 meters, which is the Everest base camp. The second phase would be I would go and touch 6,000 meters. 
the third phase was 7,000, then 8,000, and then Mount Everest was finally 8,800. I did not want to climb more than 1,000 meters higher from my last one, uh, just for acclimatization purposes. I want to test my gear, I want to test myself, and at any point, if I had felt uh, I was uh, physically or mentally unable, I would have stopped and, and come back home and happily lived my life. You're testing yourself. I'm testing myself. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it gradually, and I'm, I'm very methodical in that sense. I started with 5,000 meters, went up 1,000 meters at a time, went to Nepal five different times, uh, had the same climbing partners, had the same uh, logistics company that I partnered with, uh, tested my, my gear, also the food, uh, and just hanging out with people uh, that speak a different language, different ethnicity, it was just a fun uh, thing to do, learn more about the culture of people and be able to understand why they do certain things that they do. Uh, they're deeply religious and once you go live in the mountains, you kind of figure out why they're so religious. It's because they're the, literally the, the will of nature and they're living with nature. The closest hospital is 40 kilometers away. Uh, I remember one time I was at camp two and I had uh, pulmonary edema. I was having trouble breathing. So I go to base camp and they have a, a, a doctor there at base camp. And the guy says, oh, you know, I think you should get an x-ray. I'm like, okay, let's get it done. And he says, nope, <laughs> the closest x-ray <laughs> machine is 40 kilometers away and it's down. So yes. you go down 40 kilometers, get an x-ray and then come back up 40 kilometers. I'm like, oh my God. So wasn't fun. But you had to do it. You had to do it. And, and then you realize that every time people get sick, every time there's a childbirth happening, they have to do the same thing. And, and then you realize how lucky you are to live in the place we live. Conveniences. Conveniences. Uh, just in terms of, uh, as a society, uh, how easy it is to call 911 and mm -hmm. have somebody at your doorstep with every modern gadget out there known to modern medicine. Let's take you to May 21st, 2019, the day that you ascended to Everest and, and leading up to that day, obviously. So you decided to, well, let, let's talk about base camp first sure, of all. Sure. So you get to base camp and you have to spend a, a, a lot of time there, right, to acclimate with the altitude. How long did you spend at base camp? Four weeks. And that's 17,600 feet. 17,600 feet. So you're basically living there. So. There's nothing to do. You just get up in the morning and you walk around a little bit and then uh, you have a kitchen and uh, you have a, a dining tent and you're just sitting in there. So you're either reading a book or you're just talking with friends or you're just walking around. It's something you have to do because your body has to get acclimated. Your body has to get uh, used to. What happens is the higher you go, the lesser the amount of oxygen and your body compensates for that by producing more red blood cells. And you've got to give your body a chance to produce those red blood cells so they can absorb that oxygen as you go higher. The moment it was time to start the ascent, someone checks you out, someone asks you, your, your climbing partners, how does that happen when you're like, all right, we're ready? So we keep checking the weather forecasts and, and once we figure out our climbing window. So uh, to have a summit on May 21st, we left base camp at May 17th. So from May 17 to 18, Camp 1, then next day Camp 2, and then uh, next day Camp 3, and then Camp 4, and then from Camp 4 to the top. 
So you kind of figure out a three, four day uh, window that the weather's going to be reasonable and then you climb accordingly. Between base camp and camp one, the Kumbu Icefall? Yes. You have to use ropes and ladders to get across this. Yes, so Kumbu Icefall is a moving glacier. So every day, every minute, the ice is moving there. Uh, it's got huge chunks of ice that fall off all the time. And uh, it's a very treacherous place. So you go with ladders and ropes, and the Sherpas have fixed uh, those ahead of you. But it's extremely dangerous uh, place. You want to get in and out of that place as quick as you can. From Camp 1 to Camp 2, you have to get through the Western Coombe, which I'm told you it is blazing hot. It is blazing hot. Which is hot. crazy to think, but it makes sense. It's in a valley. Yes. No wind. No wind. Super direct sunlight. Super, super hot. And there's a couple of uh, walls there, a couple of uh, climbs there that are really, really tough. So there's one particular spot that I remember was called the wall. It was like a hundred feet wall that you climb uh, using crampons and a ladder. So it's super hot. And you compare that to nighttime, which is super cold. So these extremes kind of hurt you because uh, daytime you're sweating and nighttime you're freezing. And you can't really take off your gear, you, right? You can't take off you your just, You just deal with it. You just deal with it. <laughs> you just deal with it. So to get to Camp 3, you go through the Lhotse face, which is you're going over a wall of ice. Yes. Vertically. Vertical. That's right. It's probably after the Kumbu ice wall, the toughest thing to do because it's a constant, constant climb. You know, you look up and, you know, you never see the end of it. <laughs> you can't see the top. And then you just constant climbing, constant climbing. And it's really, really exhausting. Um, you can only carry so many supplies with you. So, sure. you know, you're kind of rationing your food and drink. You're melting the snow uh, for water. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really the water source. Is that's, the that's the only water source. That's the only water source, and water takes forever to boil sure, because it's, it's not so enough hot. oxygen. Not, not, not enough oxygen mm -hmm. to burn. You need oxygen to burn. You take you use a lot of fuel for a little bit of water. So that's one of the toughest parts. Again, getting over the Lhotse face. You get to Camp Four, and this is what's known as the beginning of the death zone. Yes. Explain yeah. what the death zone is. So eight thousand meters and above no life can exist. And that would be 26,000 feet? 26,000 feet. For people who use... Yes, yeah. yes. 26,000 feet. No life exists there. The oxygen is one-third the level there is. Uh, you cannot survive. Your body's eating itself. Uh, there's not enough oxygen. There's not enough uh, food. There's not enough nutrition. Your body can't digest anything. There's not enough blood supply. So you, you're internally... Your body's eating itself. It's eating its own muscles to survive, non-essential functions are being stopped. And that's why there's so much frostbite and stuff that happens. Uh, because as you go up, the non-essential body parts get no oxygen. It's a place where you begin to die and the clock is ticking to get out before you actually do die. That, that's right, that's right. It's, it's a place where the clock starts, tick, 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 tick. What's worse, the, the physical effects or the mental anguish that's taking place in your head? Well, mentally you're still pumped, or at least I was, because okay. I was so close to, uh, I knew one more day of climbing and I'll be at the top. So mentally I was, I was super pumped, but physically I was beat up. Uh, I hadn't eaten anything. Uh, my body wasn't 
you know, able to digest anything. I wasn't getting enough uh, liquids. I was dehydrated. You have this bad headache. It's like something pounding you on the head because there's not enough oxygen. And it never goes away. And it never goes away. It's like a constant, you know, bang, 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 you know, something banging on your head that you have to live with for, you know, the entire time that you're there. Wow, this sounds like a lot of fun. It is. <laughs> We're not even there yet, We're right? We're not even there yet. So we get to the, it's called the South Call. Yes. Basically, Camp 4. Uh-huh. And you wait there. And then when once you leave Camp 4, that's when you really are like, I'm either going or I'm not. Yes. Right? Yes. So once you leave Camp 4, that's D-Day. You know you're either going to make it to the top. And if you don't, you want to come down as soon as you can. Uh, between Camp 4 and the top, is where you see dead bodies. Uh, that's where you see people. What, what was it like up. seeing the first dead body on the mountain? It's surreal. Uh, you see someone and uh, they look they look fresh because you know the cold weather and the snow kind of preserves uh, the hairs moving around, and it's just surreal it, to see. Just look like somebody's sitting and, and taking a break. And then you realize, nope, yeah. he's uh, he's not coming back. Wow. And I mean, people know this, but just to point out, they don't remove bodies, they don't remove trash. No. It's it's just left there. It's, it's left part of the there. mountain now. It's it's part of the mountain now. Uh, more and more efforts are being done to remove the trash. So now they have a, a zero trash policy. So you know, on our climb, we brought back everything we took up. So that means. Uh, empty shells, any wrappers, any food covers. So it's a, it's a zero uh, waste policy. That's good. That's yeah, good. so we bought everything back. But still there's people that uh, leave stuff there just because they're physically unable to carry it back and, and it becomes a matter of survival. And, and they're just trying to push themselves back to safety. So we're almost at the top. Almost at the right top. after Camp 4 is the balcony. And yes. this is a place where you rest, right? Yes. And it's some nice sights from this point, right? Relatively, uh, it's, a, it's a flat area that you can actually sit down and, and you know, uh, have a drink of water or just kind of recalibrate yourself or, you know, uh, tighten your shoes or whatever else that you need to do uh, to make it. Did you tighten your shoes no, at I, any point? <laughs> I did not tighten <laughs> I did not tighten my shoes, but I did go down on my knees and, and say a prayer and, and kind of buck yeah. um, myself up and say, hey, you can do it. You're so close. It, you know, it takes, uh, took you almost three years to get here. You're literally at that point three, four, five hours away from, from the top, depending on your speed. And all I want to do is go up there, touch it, say a prayer, and then come back down back to my family. My shoes would be triple knotted if I ever went up at first. <laughs> I wouldn't have to worry about that. Next is the Cornice Traverse, which is another difficult climb. It's, it's a face of snow and rock, right? Yes. Uh, it, it is. And at that point, uh, everything is just takes forever. So uh, for every step you take at uh, sea level, it's like taking st- 10 steps there. So you're literally taking a step, uh, breathing hard, trying to get as much air in you as you can, uh, and then taking that step again. So it's a long, 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 long journey. Every breath, I just can imagine. I've watched videos on YouTube, and you hear people's breathing when they get near the summit, and it's just like... (gasps) Yes, yes. 
absolutely. There's. It's hard to get any oxygen in. It's hard to get any oxygen in. It's. it's really, did you have tanks, by the way? I did have oxygen, and even, even that, it's hard. Even with that, it's it's extremely extremely hard. I couldn't imagine going without. I know people do that all the people time. People do that all the time. Hillary Step, tell me about the Hillary Step, and that's of course named after Edmund Hillary, who we think was the first person to get to the top of the mountain. It might have oh. been George Mallory, but in any event, what's the Hillary Step? Well, it's just a, it's just a rock face that you have to get over uh, to get there. People say that uh, it used to be a lot tougher a few years ago, but then they had uh, an earthquake in Nepal, and that mm. kind of changed the character of the Hillary Step. Once again, it's just another obstacle. So all these are merely bumps in the road. They're by merely, now, they by are. By now, they are. You know, you, you can literally feel at the top and you know that all you got to do is put one foot in front of the other and you will make it to the end there's and, and the biggest thing is to con control your mind and make sure uh, internally you haven't given up internally you're strong internally you're saying oh you know I got this I've trained for this I've I worked hard for this it's it's an easy thing nothing's gonna happen to me when you get through this Hillary step, there are ropes that you need to latch onto, and yes. it's one person at a time. One and person. it's very slender and narrow, it's, right? It's very slender and narrow, and, and sometimes you have more than one person hanging on the rope, and you just have to trust that the rope is strong enough to uh, take your weight and the weight of a couple other people hanging in there. So there's people going up and there's people coming down all on the same rope. So imagine uh, a one-way road where two cars won't fit. So if you have two cars uh, in the opposite direction, somebody has to back off. Yeah. And uh, since if you're going up, you're, you're going to be the one that's coming down because the guy at the top can't go back up top. He has to go down. So you do this many times and it just, another thing that's going to tire you. Sure, sure. Uh, Are you looking around? Are you looking down? Are you paying attention to everything around you. I mean, I would be afraid to look down until I knew I was up at the top. Yeah, so when I was climbing, I was just looking at my feet one step ahead. I wasn't, I mean, I was looking to make sure everything was okay. I wasn't looking back. I wasn't looking down because it's scary to look down. I was just glancing on the side, saw sunrise on the way up. But other than that, you just totally, totally focused on survival. It's the ultimate uh, uh, rush. It's the ultimate, uh, it's you against nature. You have to figure a way out to survive in that extreme, extreme uh, environment. Before we talk about the top again, we're at the Hillary step right now. We're almost there, almost Ricky. There. We're almost there. You did something very smart and not a lot of people did. You chose to go up in poor weather on that day, May 21st, to avoid the crowds because the best weather days are when everyone's going to want to go up to the right. top of the mountain. And if people remember that famous picture of the log jam, it looked right. like the Schuylkill Expressway going up to the top of That's Everest. Right. That was the day after you made your summit, correct? Yes, yes. So um, we were at Camp 4 and with a bunch of other people, and, and the weather was really, really bad. It, it was windy. It was extremely cold. And... Uh, we all had to make a choice. Do we go up in bad weather so we can avoid the crowds? Or do we wait for good weather and just follow people on that, uh, on that climb? And, and I made the choice along with my Sherpa 
that uh, we can make it in, in bad weather. We can make it uh, because the traffic was going to be light, so the ropes were going to be easier to access and uh, without the traffic, what would normally be a, a 12 or 14 hour climb, we could do it in, in eight, eight hours. So it would, have, it would considerably cut down our uh, exposure time outside. So even though it was cold and windy and it was tough and extreme temperature, our time outside could have been cut or, or will be cut because you know there's not much traffic on that particular road. From the Hillary step to your first step on the top of the world, what, what's the transition between the two like when you finally make it? Once you get close, you know, you're on the, uh, it's like a razor's edge. So you're on the edge, you're walking a ledge that, that just... I'm getting nervous precarious. right now with you describing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. So when you're there, you just put one step in front of the other. You don't think about all the things that could go wrong. Uh, because if you started thinking like that, you'd never make it anywhere in life. So you're always thinking positive. You're always saying, hey, you know, plenty of people have done this. I, I got this. No big deal. All I have to do is, is walk this step, one step at a time. How long did you spend up on the top? I spent 15 minutes. I hear that generally it's about 30. Yes. Yeah, Was it a choice that you were going to leave after 15? Yeah, because we had gone in, in bad weather and it was uh, really, really tough. We were really exhausted. And uh, at that point, I was really knackered down, tired. Uh, I just wanted to get back to safety. I just, I had climbed to the top and, and I wanted to tell the world that, you know, I, I had done it. And the only way to do that was to go back down and, and make a phone call or send a quick message and, and get back to safety as soon as I could. Ricky, did you take a selfie? <laughs> no. <laughs> you didn't? I, we did not take a selfie, but I, I do have a picture at, at the top. So it wasn't one of these, you no. know, with the mountain behind me? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. So you want to respect the mountain. Sure. You want to you make sure um, you, you... People say they conquer Mount Everest, but nobody conquers Mount Everest. Mount Everest for the local people is, is a goddess. Sagar Matha, they call it. And to get up top, you need the blessings of, of, of the goddess. You, you know, you can only make it to the top if the mountain lets you make it to the top. Mm -hmm. So no matter how skillful you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how many layers of, uh, you know, clothes or devices or tools you have, if the mountain doesn't want you to get up there, you're not going to make it up there. You had two goals, Ricky. Make it to the top and make it home. Right. How'd you do the second one? Once you get to the top, you just one step at a time back down again. And, and fortunately for me, the day I was coming down, the weather was really good. So all the people were going up and we were coming down. So, and it was, it was a good feeling, you know. Really? It's, it's, a, it's a good so feeling. So the adrenaline kicks in again? Uh, for me, it did. Okay. For me, after a certain point, it did. So from the top to camp four, there was a lot of adrenaline. So after camp four is you kind of you know, things start calming down a little bit. The adrenaline starts going away. Things start hurting. You kind of figure out, you, you start feeling hunger again. You start feeling thirsty. You have injuries, lingering I, injuries? I, I do. I have frostbite on my fingers and I lost uh, three fingertips. Would you mind showing them?
Nothing debilitating, just simple, minor stuff. Is this common? It's very common. You knew it was potentially going to be the case for you. <laughs> I, I knew going in, and I was willing to pay the price, uh, maybe even a higher price. So I'm just glad I got away with minor, uh, minor setbacks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a life-altering, uh, you know, losing a few fingertips. It's, uh, it's an inconvenience at the most, hmm. and uh, there's positives to it. Makes you more careful, makes you kind of understand that there's consequences to every action you take, and that every goal, every success comes with a cost. So you may become super successful, but you may have to pay a cost in terms of your family. Um, in my case, I was able to summit Everest, but the cost to that summit was, you know, a few uh, permanent scars. In 2019, you were only the second Indian American to make the summit, and I'm told you're the first American Sikh yes. to summit Everest. Yes. I find this surprising. Uh, me too, I was surprised. I was surprised. Uh, so a lot of Sikhs have, have done it, but most of them have gone from the army, have represented the Indian army. So. Uh, not Americans. Not, not Americans. Uh, there's been a few Americans, but none of them have been Sikhs. None of them, only one other Indian American that I know of that had done it before me. So... What does it mean to you? It almost feels like a, a trailblazer. So I did it to kind of motivate my son to live my life by example, to show him that ordinary people, if they put their minds can achieve great things. Mount Everest to me is not just a mountain. It's not something that uh, is high, big and tall, but to me it's just an obstacle, an obstacle that can be crossed, an obstacle that can be summited with the right preparation, with the right tools, with the right mindset. So everybody, I hope, can achieve their Everest. Everybody can achieve their goals. For me, my goal was to get to the top of the mountain. For other people, it might be buying their first house or, or, or paying for their kids' education or just having a meal on the, on the table. So I think everybody can achieve their Everest, quote unquote, uh, their top, their, their goals. I was very fortunate. I had a, a very strong team to help me, Sherpas, uh, logistics company, cooks, and, and I wish we had more people that were willing to help others achieve their Everest. I couldn't have done it by myself. There was no way I could have carried everything and, and done everything by myself. So when you come down, you want to see and help other people achieve their goals, be the Sherpas in their life. So Everest is a synonym for success, to getting on top, beating the odds, getting over the obstacles. And, and being a Sherpa is a synonym to helping somebody achieve their goals. So these Sherpa people, they have climbed 10, 15, 20 times. They've done, they do this every year. They do this for a living. There's no glory for them. There's no interviews for them. Uh, for them, it's, it's their livelihood. But I think the fact that you are a Sherpa to somebody, you've helped somebody achieve their lifelong goals, it means something. And uh, when I'm back, this is what I'm trying to do, be a Sherpa for other people so they can achieve their Everest.
11 people died in 2019 trying to climb Mount Everest. Once again, we, we saw that picture of how crowded it was on the mountain. Nepal has been talking about restricting the amount of people that go up and also taking a closer look at some of these companies, if they're training people properly, if people who are being allowed to go up should even be going up in the first place. What are some of the things that you would hope Nepal would be doing to create this uh, a more a safer environment, which is almost silly to say about Mount Everest? But Yeah, well, right now it's... Uh... Up till 2019, it was free for all. If, if you wanted to do it, and uh, if you had the means to pay for it, you could, you could attempt it. I think having some prerequisites would be a good thing. You know, you want to run the Boston Marathon, there's, there's requirements. Sure. Right? So you want to you wanna run any major event, you have to be qualified to do that. But to do Mount Everest, there's no quote-unquote qualifications. So I think it would be wise for, for the Nepalese government to say, hey, you have to have climbed at least one 7,000 meter or 8,000 meter peak before you even attempt Everest. So that would limit the number of first timers uh, that do it. That would also make it a lot safer because then a lot of these people wouldn't be learning on the job. They wouldn't be learning on their, on their climb. They would have had experience with it. On the, on the contrary, people say the mountain should be free for everybody, mountain should be open to everybody, and that anybody that wants to do should be allowed to do. So there's pros and cons. So what's next for you is you talk about being a Sherpa to other people. You're mentoring someone right now yes. who wants to climb Mount Everest, and you're also talking about doing ultra marathons. What's an ultramarathon? So ultramarathon is anything longer than a, than a marathon. So a marathon is 26.2 miles. Anything longer than that is an ultramarathon. So there, there are races that are 50K, 50 mile, 100K, 100 mile, 135, 200. So the, and you do these without breaks? Uh, you could take walking breaks. Okay. So most of these races have uh, cutoff times. Okay. So you just have to make it within that time. So some people run and they run fast, and they may or may not take a break. And there are people that will take multiple breaks uh, as needed. Sounds like Forrest Gump running across the country. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I yes. I just kept running. <laughs> yes, yes, Forrest Gump is, a, is an icon for, for people like me that want to run uh, to see that it's such a simple exercise. You just get up, you put your shoes on, uh, and, and then you run, and then you run, and you run, and you run. What did you learn about yourself throughout all of this? It's the biggest thing I learned is the mind is, is bigger than anything else. Uh, you could be in extreme discomfort, you could be in cold, you could be in extremely windy, a hostile uh, environment. But if you can calm your mind down and control yourself and say to yourself, hey, right now it's a little bit tough, but if I can survive tonight, if I can survive for three nights here, I'll be back home uh, in the comfort uh, of my, my house, running water, electricity, beer, whatever, <laughs> whatever fancies you. So you just have to be able to talk to yourself and say, hey, right now it's a tough phase in my life. I'm going through some turbulence, but I just need to buckle down, put my seatbelt on, put my head down, focus on survival. And uh, before long, uh, we'll be out of this turbulence and we'll be in extremely nice and calm uh, temperatures. 
Ricky Singh, a man of many firsts <laughs> and proud summiter of Mount Everest. Thanks for joining us on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Singh says his oldest son shares his love of running, already bagged his own marathon, and can even beat dad in a sprint. Will he follow in dad's footsteps and one day stand on top of the world too? Like Singh would say, that is something only the mountain can decide. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Thanks for listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast.